Good morning, church. Glad you are here this morning. Just want to welcome all the visitors that are here this morning. Welcome. Welcome to the Cornerstone Bible Church. I'm glad you're here with us. Um, I always feel like uh, saying, I know there's many other airlines that you can choose. Thank you for flying with the Cornerstone. But glad you're here. And I, I just want to begin by saying for the record that uh, I know I have been absent these past few weeks, but I am still a member of the Cornerstone Bible Church, and I think I'm still in good standing here. Um, well, in our travels, uh, as we've been traveling this summer, we've been traveling and will be continuing to travel, uh, usually we begin our drives to wherever we are going all awake. And eventually, I will be the only one awake as I'm driving. And as we're driving, I'm always thinking about the cities that we're driving through, especially as we're going out to the mountains. Uh, in this last trip, we went out to June Lake and Mono Lake, that area. Never been there, saw a lot of towns. And as I'm driving through, I'm always thinking about those little towns and those little cities. And I'm asking the question, I wonder, is there a church there? And I'm wondering, if there's a church there, what kind of church is it? And as I'm going through there, I, I imagine myself asking the pastors of those churches and asking them this very important question. What is your vision for the church? What is your vision for your local church? That's an important question. But as I thought about it more and more, I realized that that is probably the wrong question the question is not, what do pastors envision for their churches to be, but what does Christ envision and desire for his church to be? Perhaps there is no other text of scripture that explains what Christ's desire for his church to be than in John chapter 17. So I invite you, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, and we're going to read John chapter 17, verses 13 to 17, and, and this is the great prayer of our Lord, the true Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, and I've entitled our sermon, my sermon this morning, Our Joy by the Sanctifying Word of Christ. Our Joy by the Sanctifying Word of Christ. We find ourselves in John chapter 17, verses 13 to 17. Let's, let's read that text, and then I'll, I'll pray, and we can begin. This is the Lord praying, and he says this, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Let's pray. O oh, Father, we give you thanks for the truth that you have given to us in this word. We're grateful that you have opened our eyes 
to behold wonderful things from your word. And I do pray that this morning would you bless and make this time profitable as we spend time looking into these words of the Lord Jesus Christ in his final moments as he's given, giving a prayer to his Father about what is most important, what is most vital, what is so central. Help us to see what he sees. Help us to prioritize what he prioritizes. Help us to envision what he envisions for His people, for His church. I pray for all that are here this morning that they would not hear my voice, but they would hear Jesus' voice, that they would hear the Savior's voice, that they would be transformed and be renewed in their hearts, that they would be lifted up, that they would be encouraged, that they would be changed from what they were when, before they came into this place. So God, we pray for salvation. We pray for hope. We pray for encouragement this morning. Above all, I pray for joy for your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think it's worth a bit of our time of spending a bit of background on this prayer. This prayer that Jesus gives occurs in the early hours of Friday morning. The Friday on which Jesus would soon be executed on a Roman cross. Jesus was on his way to Gethsemane. With the eleven disciples, remember, at this time, Judas has already begun his betrayal. And so in this chapter, Jesus is praying after a whole evening spent with the disciples in the upper room during the Passover, where Jesus would not only institute the Lord's table, but he would also explain to them the coming and arrival of the Holy Spirit, who would promise to enlighten them, to show them the truth and to lead them into all the truth, and to show them that they will do a greater work than even Christ himself. And that's in the upper room discourse in chapters 13 to 16. So now as we enter chapter 17, Jesus is praying. And if you remember in the Gospel of John, over and over Jesus would say this word, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. But now in John chapter 17, Jesus says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. What he means by that is his time of redemption, his time of death has come. His hour of sacrificial death has come. His hour has come to redeem sinners by taking the punishment that they deserve. Now, I give that background because I think it's very important to see what goes through the mind of a man in his greatest moment of conflict. I give that background because this was the crisis moment in the life of our Lord. This was the most strenuous and challenging moment of Jesus. So much so that in Luke's account, it says that Jesus was sweating drops of blood as he was agonizing over what was before him about the wrath of God that he would soon drink in this cup of wrath that he would take in as he would die on that Roman cross for sins that he did not commit, but for the sins of people. We have a modern medical term for that known as hematidrosis where the capillaries in in, in your skin burst forth so blood drips because of great duress and, and stress. This was an emergency moment in the life of our Lord. And this is important because what comes out is really the measure of a man. What are you really like in your greatest moment of crisis? What are you really like? What are you made of? What in 
in those types of moments? What is your character like? And you really don't know anyone until they're placed in such, such situations, in great moments of trial. And here we see our Lord under great stress as the impending betrayal, arrest, and mock trial comes as he's going to be handed off to Annas, then Caiaphas, the high priests, and then before Herod and Pilate. What do we see from the Lord? What is he going to cry out for? What was his final request? What was his final thoughts? What were his final concerns? His concern was not for rescue. His concern was not for a fair trial. His concern was simply this. Look in verse 13. This was his concern for those that he would leave behind, for those that would be his disciples, and for those that would take the word of the disciples. His final concern was this in verse 13. But now I come to thee, Father, as he's praying. In these things, he's talking about all the things that he's revealed in chapters 13 to 16. All these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. You see, before his death, Jesus pled with the Father. He pled with the Father that his disciples would have joy, and not just any joy, but joy that would be made full in themselves. Notice, Jesus said that they would have my joy. He says that they would have my joy. It's a statement that echoes what Jesus said earlier. If you go back to John chapter 15, verse 11, he says the very same things. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He's praying that there would be a fullness, a gladness, a happiness that they would have. And that's obvious because... They're sad that their leader, their master, their teacher, their savior is going to depart and die. And so he's praying, would they have joy? And again, observe the location of this joy. It's not in themselves. Joy is not within us. We cannot muster. We cannot produce this joy. We cannot manufacture it. It is a joy that is external. It it belongs to Christ which He then graciously gives to us. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I think Lewis is right. In our search for happiness apart from God, it will yield all these sinful endeavors. According to the biblical writer James, we read, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. That's James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You see, this world has mislocated joy. They mislocated the source of joy. We in this world have this innate desire for joy, but we but think and believe that it comes from within. But really, joy comes from without. It doesn't come from within. It comes from a person. It comes from Christ. And that's why there's good news. 
If you find yourself not happy, if you find yourself not joyful this morning, there's good news because joy is available. It's available in the person of Jesus Christ. He offers it to you as he offers himself. Alexander McLaren wrote this, quote, The only cheerful Christianity is a Christianity that draws its gladness from deep personal experience of communion with Jesus Christ. If we abide in Christ, His joy will abide in us and our joy will be full. Oh, dear friends, that means that only real joy that we can have, the only real joy that we can have is by our union in Christ. And the only way that we can be united to Christ, the only way that we can have what He has, It's to place our faith in Christ for what He has accomplished in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. He died for the sins that He did not commit. He died as our substitute, thereby forgiving us of sins that we have committed. And so this chapter, He is praying for you, Christian. He is praying for you. He is praying this in verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, Father, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the Lord's prayer. He's praying this so that you and I would know Christ and Him alone. Because He alone can forgive us of our sins. He alone is the source of all joy because He alone is able to give you such joy of being forgiven of not just some of your sins, but all your sins. Even the sins that you've yet, yet to commit, He will forgive Because when you place your faith in Christ, you unite yourself to Christ and you have what He has, and that is joy. And notice what Jesus says back in our text. I have come and I have spoken these things to the world that they may have my joy, my joy made full. Made full. That means that there might be obstacles that prevent joy from being full in your life. There might be obstacles that prevent joy from overflowing in your life, from being complete by... By being mature or being fulfilled, there are obstacles. And so what Jesus does is He prays for at least three things that is worth our time in these next moments together. God wants you to have fullness of joy by first of all knowing your identity, trusting your security, and thirdly, obeying God in your purity. So that's our three headings. We're going to look at our identity, our security, and our purity. So let's begin our pursuit of joy by knowing our identity. If Jesus says, "My, I came, I spoke these things so that they would have my joy, how are we to have that joy? Well, he explains in verses 14 to 17. And we begin by knowing our identity. Knowing our identity. Back in 2012, that's not too long ago, I remember getting an email from my credit card company stating that I have been a victim of identity theft. Apparently, my American Express card was used for an overseas transaction for the amount of 79 euros. Now, that's not a very large amount by any means, but the thought of someone stealing my identity produced in me a certain level of anxiety. In my mind. Today, there is something very similar going on in the church that goes by the same name of identity theft. Christians are being fooled into going back to their old self, going back to their old ways, 
going back to their old identity. There is theft taking place in the church where Christians are forgetting their identity in Christ. And what is that identity? What is the Christian's identity that is being stolen? Well, he says it in verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them the word, and as a result of giving them the word, the world hates them. And then notice what Jesus says, because they are not of the world. And even as I am not of the world. And he repeats this in verse 16. And they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus twice, three times, four times, repeats, I am not of the world, you are not of the world. He is praying and explaining this unavoidable fact that all Christians will be hated by this world because Christians are no longer of this world. And the reason identity theft continues in the church is because Christians are tempted to go back to their old identity. They're tempted to go back to their old ways so that they would be loved by the world, so that they will be accepted by the world, so that they will be embraced by the world, so that they will be pleased by the world. But Jesus says, this is unavoidable. If you are with me, you will be hated by the world just as I was hated by the world. Dear precious saints, we are no longer of the world. We are no longer of this place. Protect your joy by knowing that you are no longer of this world. Because our identity has been changed in at least three ways. At least three ways. Number one, our family has changed. Have you noticed that when you became a Christian, your family has changed? We are no longer children just of our biological parents, but we've been adopted by our Father who is in heaven. We are now part of His plan, part of the plan that He has revealed to us in His Word. He has now given us resources that we did not have before. He has given us His Spirit. He has given us His Word. He has given us His church. He has given us His family of God. In fact, in fact, Jesus is only praying for His people. He's not praying for the world. Notice who Jesus prays for. Go back in verse 9. In this long prayer, Jesus is not praying for the world. He's not asking or pleading for the world. Notice who He's pleading for. In verse 9, I ask on their behalf, that is the disciples, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are yours. Jesus is praying for the elect of God that has been given over to him by the Father. He's giving a prayer for those whom the Father has chosen in eternity past to give over to the Son. And so these are the ones that Jesus is praying for. Because our family has changed. We are no longer the same. We have now, we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a new identity. And at the very least, our identity says this. We are not of this world. This is no longer the family that we once had. We have a new family. We have a new family in Christ where we call them brothers and sisters. And now, God is no longer our judge. God is now our Father. He is not just our Father. He is our Abba Father. Secondly, our citizenship has changed. When it comes to our identity, it's not just our family has changed, but our citizenship has changed. It's no longer a citizenship of where our country or of where of, of our country of birth or residence, but our residence is of this of another world. Paul writes, "Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly await for a savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 3.20. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, you no longer belong to yourself. You've been bought, you've been given over to, to God for a possession that you are now his and he has purposes for you. And then a few verses later in that same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, I urge you as aliens, as strangers, as sojourners to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You know what your identity is? You're no longer a citizen of this world. You're an alien. You're an immigrant. You're a stranger in this foreign place. That is to say, this is not our home. This place is not our home. We need to invest in something far more eternal than the temporary nature of this world. This place is not our own. But not only has that changed, not only has our family changed, our citizenship has changed, but also our future has changed. Our future has changed. We are no longer pursuing a future of of amassing self-pleasure, of amassing wealth or knowledge or careers or great respect and worldly accolades. We are no longer working for to gain the world But instead, we're striving to gain Christ. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? We have a longing for great things, but Jesus warns, you may have the world, but you at the same time can have the whole world and yet forfeit your soul. Life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. We have no idea when you will perish. Beloved, if we are to have our joy full, we must know that our identity is simply this, that we are not of this world. That's so fundamental. We need to remember this. We need to be mastered by this, that we are not of this world. B.J. Penn, some of you may know who B.J. Penn is. He was a former UFC lightweight champion. He was nicknamed the Prodigy. Because he earned his black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu system, he was able to get his black belt in three years. Typically, it takes 10 to 12 years to gain your black belt in this system of Jiu-Jitsu. And so they interviewed BJ and said, BJ, how was it that you were able to master this martial art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in just three years? How were you able to do this? And BJ responded, and he said, whenever I teach a class, whenever I instruct, there is never intermediate or advanced. There is only basic. He says, those that know the basics are the most advanced. And when he said that, I said to myself, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. Because in the Christian life, what is true in the Christian life, our joy is not knowing the deep, advanced, complex mysteries of God. That's not where our joy lies. Our joy lies in the very simple and basic truth, and it's what Jesus prays, you are not of this world. Think of all this, the heartache that you would be spared if you just remember that this world is not your home. We cling too closely to this world. We need to be mastered and preoccupied by the fact that we do not belong to this place, but we've been rescued from this place And belong to another. 
Because we have been given a new identity. Our definition of who we are is no longer according to what our parents tell us, no longer what our, our, our college tells us, no longer what the letters behind our name tell us. It's by what God tells us who we are. And this is what he says about you. You're, you're no longer of this world. You don't belong to this. You are mine. You are mine. And I have a purpose for you. So Jesus, first of all, tells us what our true identity is. You are not of this world, just as He is not of this world. Because we belong to Christ, and whatever Christ has, we have. He has joy, we have it if we are in Him. He is not of the world, and we, we are not of the world. So we need to, first of all, know our identity. Store up joy by knowing our true identity. Secondly, we need to trust in our security. Trust in our security. Notice how Jesus prays, how he prays this prayer. He says, I do not ask, in verse 15, I do not ask thee to take them out of this world. You know, there are times I pray the very opposite of what Jesus prays. When I look around our world, I say, Lord, just take me. Just take me now from this place. I I, I don't want to live here anymore. Not that I'm suicidal, don't get me wrong. But I'm just like, just... Beam me up. Take me out. May the rapture come. Just take me. Because this place is just becoming more and more wicked as I look and I become preoccupied in my mind of this world. But yet Jesus says, I ask that you do not take them out. I do not ask that you take them out. But instead, Jesus is praying that you keep them. Keep them, he says, from the evil one. And that little phrase, keep them from the evil one, that's the same phrase that John uses in 1 John 5.19, where he says, keep them from the evil one. That's a phrase that refers to Satan. The world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. He says, keep these disciples of mine and the disciples and the Christians that will follow after them. I pray, Father, keep them, protect them, secure them from the assaults and attacks of Satan. The threat for Christians is the satanic assault that they will face in this life. And so Jesus prays for their security. And the assault that comes from Satan is not horns, it's not a pitchfork, it's not a guy in a red suit or anything like that. It's not demon possessions as these popular movies come. It's not worship cults, it's not satanic cults or anything like that. The attack by Satan is death by a thousand Knives. It's the ongoing onslaught that are very subtle. That are very subtle. There, there are lots of different ways that Satan subtly attacks the Christian church. He attacks Christians. And there's at least three ways in which the Christian can fall into the power of the evil one. If you want to fall into the power of the evil one, if you want to, embr- if you want to be caught up in his schemes, if you want to be enticed and be given over to him, this is what you want to do. If you want to do that, you can embrace the world's wisdom. If you want to be susceptible to the attacks of Satan, embrace the world's wisdom. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to financial management, when it comes to leadership principles, when it comes to counseling... Christians are tempted to incorporate the wisdom of the world in these areas with little to no consideration of what the Word of God has to say. 
And that's tempting because we want to accept the wisdom of the world. Why? So that we would be accepted before them. So that we would be loved by them. So that we would be seen in, in, a, in a good light by the world. And yet we forget, this is not our home. This is not our world. If the world hated Jesus, they will hate us. And so to, to protect ourselves from the infiltration of the evil one, we need to avoid the world's wisdom. Avoid the world's wisdom. We have allowed the world to define marriage. Many Christians have. Have allowed the world to define sexuality. That's why there's all this gender confusion, parenting confusion, financial management, all of these things. Secondly, if you want to fall into the hands of the evil one, embrace the world's theology. The world does have a theology. They could be flat-out atheists, but they have a theology. They have an understanding of who God is. Now, now, now just as a comment, have you noticed that the world has set its agenda in the way it presents the news before you? When the news is given to you in whatever form, whether that be through your social media, through the cable networks, or even through newspapers, yes, the ones that you fold, those newspapers, even those, have you noticed that the conclusions have already been made for you? The conclusions of every matter has been made for you. The world has done you a favor by giving you the conclusion and spared you the expense of exercising what is called critical analysis or what the Bible calls biblical discernment. They have done that for you. And they have said, here's the conclusion that you, need, that you need to make. And if you don't buy into this conclusion, you're a racist, or you are a bigot, or you are in the wrong, or you are hateful. It's a hate crime. Because the world has an agenda. The news is no longer by just giving us the facts. The conclusions are made for you. The world has made up your mind for you to spare you. The, the task of what God has called you to do, and that is think carefully. What is the world saying? And that's, that's really what Jesus is praying for. Spare them, Lord. Protect them from that kind of onslaught. Protect them from that kind of thinking that would so entice the world with a theology that says, redefine church. Redefine leadership in the church. Redefine who is the one who is going to be called the pastor in the church. I will save my comments. I will not go any further than that on that. But there is more that could be said. The world has an agenda. The world has an agenda, whether that agenda be solving world hunger, solving homelessness, ending wars, climate change, tax relief, third world debt. Those causes, all those causes are noble causes, but they are not the Christian's agenda. The agenda for the Christian is to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. That is to teach them doctrine, teach them scripture. That's the agenda for the Christian. And what we can often fall into is other programs. Have you ever been asked this? Does your church have a program for the homeless? Does your church have a program for the poor? Oh, you don't. And you feel guilty. I, I don't know if we do. Does your church have a program for orphan kids? I don't know if we do. Does your church have a program for tax relief? Financial management? It's good to have those things, but that's not the priority of the church. 
That's not the agenda of the church. The, the goal of the church is for us to embrace Christ, to lift up Christ, to give glory to Christ. Now hear me. Hear me. The evil one does not want you to abandon Jesus. That's too obvious. Satan does not want you to abandon Jesus. That is far too obvious. Here's what Satan wants to do. Believe in Jesus, that's fine. But let's add to Jesus. Jesus isn't enough. Let's add a little bit more to Jesus. Let's say, yes, believe in Jesus, that's all well and good. But add to Jesus a little bit more. Let's add a little bit of tradition. Let's add a little bit of... You have to do something now for your part in your salvation. You have to contribute something on your part. You have to do something. You have to sprinkle a little bit of tradition. There has to be another mediator. Jesus isn't enough. There needs to be a co-mediatrix. It's not just Jesus. Mary has to now be a mediator, mediator as well. And not only is Jesus enough, but we need to have another vicar another representative on the earth, and let's call him the Pope. The Vicar of Christ is the title of the Pope. Now that's blasphemous to call the Pope the Vicar of Christ because that is to say the Pope is the one who represents Christ. That's blasphemous. There's only one. When Christ departed, he said in John chapter 15, I will send you another, and that other one is the Holy Spirit, and he will speak of me. He will guide you into all the truth. I will send you another. The word for another is this Greek word, alos, which means of another of the same kind as me. I will give you God, and I will give you God, and his name is the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you forever. He's the only vicar of Christ. But to, to, to have another one and give him this title and give him this power... And yet at the same time say, yes, Jesus is enough? That's blasphemous. That's adding to what Christ is already. And that's an agenda that this world had. Let's add a little bit more. Let's add a little bit more of works to Christ. So the schemes of the devil, the schemes of the evil one is to layer tradition, layer, 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 layer works around who Christ is. So that you can say, I don't know if Jesus is enough. It's the same temptation that was given back to Eve in the very beginning. Has God really said? Is God enough? Maybe there's a little bit more. Maybe you need to go somewhere else. Maybe you need to go find wisdom from somewhere else. No, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another help. I will give you the Spirit who will guide you into all the truth. Jesus is enough. Because the Spirit, even the Spirit himself, he does not speak of his own accord, but he gives you truth that is of Christ. Again, Satan does not want you to abandon Jesus. He just wants to add to Jesus. You see how that works? He wants to add layer upon layer, scheme upon scheme, tradition upon tradition, so that in the end, it's not just all about Jesus. Just like that song we sang. Jesus is enough. Take this world. God is enough. But no. The evil one wants to take your trust away from Jesus. He wants to take your trust away from Jesus and instead add other things. He wants to add the world's wisdom. He wants to add the world's theology. He wants to add the world's agenda. Oh, dear saints, the goal for the Christian then is not that we would depart and become monks and depart this world. Jesus didn't say that. He said, I do not ask that you would take them out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. That we are to live in this world that is fallen, that is full of temptation. How then are we to live in this dark and fallen place? How are we to live? 
in this place that is so full of temptation, so full of the schemes of the evil one. And it's very tempting to rename things as Christians. As you know, this month is June. It's June. It used to just be called June. But now it's June Pride Month. And then there, who knows what other names are, it's going to be called. And so what Christians, how do they respond? Well, if that's what it's going to be called, Pride Month, we're going to rename it. It's not going to be called Pride Month. It's going to be Life Month. Why? Because a year ago, Roe v. Wade was overturned. So Christians are saying, no, we're going to rename it. It's not going to be called you know, Pride Month. It's going to be called Life Month. Is that what we need to do in this world? Is to start renaming things to be against this world, to be an opposite of this world. Is we need to come up with creative ways to show our rebellion to this world. And some might say yes. Some Christians believe that's what we that's what we need to do. We need to redeem the time, for the days are evil. So we need to name things and claim things as Christian, as opposed to what the world is claiming them. I don't think we need to do that. I don't think we need to do that in this dark place. We don't need to be clever. We don't need to usher in a new type of renaissance where we have creative ways to rename things. We don't need to be creative and be different from the world. No, we really need to do just one thing. Just one thing. We just need to follow Christ. And when you do that, you'll be different. Because you will have to say no to what the world says yes to. If you follow Christ, you will have to love what He loves. And if you follow Christ, that means you will have to hate what He hates. And that's enough. Nothing creative. Nothing more. If you follow the way of Christ, you will be different. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a way of saying the obvious. Listen to what he says. Quote, When the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, though we happen to be Christian. Our ambition is to be like Christ. The more like Him, the better. And the more like Him that we become, the more we shall be unlike everybody who is not a Christian. End quote. That's so well put that the more we become like Christ, the more different and the more unlike you will become like the world. Now ask yourself, ask yourself, are you like the world? Is the way you live, the life that you live, in accordance to the ways of the world so that the world can see zero distinctions between your life and that of the world? You see, Jesus prays for you to live in such a way that you are not succumbing to the evil one. He's praying for you now. And if you're struggling for that, know this, that Jesus is praying for you. He is sustaining you every day. His ministry, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, He is the mediator. He is the one who is interceding for you day and night. He is able to save you forever, interceding for you on your behalf, praying for you that you would not succumb and fall to that. And I understand there are times when we want to be find, we want to find ourselves pleasing to the world. We, we are times we are afraid. There are times when we are afraid when the world looks down on us and say, you have no plan to, to, to help the poor? 
What kind of church are you? In fact, what is your church like? Let me tell you what the church ought to be. Have you ever had people tell you that? Tell you what the church should be like and they're complete unbelievers. I think that's completely odd that an unbeliever would tell you what the church ought to be like. It's like someone telling you what your mom and dad are really like when they have no idea who your mom and dad really are. That's how foolish that is. And yet the pressure of a fear of man is so great that we can say, yes, tell me, what what should we be doing? And this has taken captive many Christians. Christians are no longer preaching the gospel. They're not just preaching the gospel anymore. They're saying, you know what, the gospel of grace, I used to preach that, but that's not enough anymore. I used to preach the gospel of grace. One famous pastor said, the gospel of grace, I used to preach that for decades, but not anymore because that gospel of grace is truncated. I need to preach that and the gospel of justice. The greatest of men are, are attempted to, to succumb to this. And so Jesus says, I'm praying for you. Be kept from the evil one. Do not fall into this world. Remember, this world is not your home. So if you want to have a life that is full of joy, remember this world is not our home. Remember that this world is tempting us. We need to hold fast to Christ himself. And thirdly, we need to know our identity. We need to know our security. And thirdly, we need to know our purity. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Here's the desire that Jesus has for his church. Here's the desire that Jesus has for his people. That they would be sanctified. Now what does that word mean? That's a fancy word that we don't use often. Sanctified just means to be set apart. Oftentimes it's translated holy, that they would be holy, that they would be godly, that they would be set apart. It means to be set apart. And in John's Gospel, that word is not used too often. It's used in one other place as a verb in John chapter 10. Here's how Jesus used it. In John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 36, he says this. Do you say of him when the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said that I am the Son of God? Um, he says the way he, Jesus uses it, the Father sanctified and sent me into the world. The way Jesus is using it, this word sanctified, it means to be put on a task, to be set apart for a particular task, a particular mission. Jesus is emphasizing that to be sanctified is to be set apart for a particular direction, a particular purpose or mission, a task. And he wants to say the same thing for his disciples, that they would be set apart for a particular use, for a particular mission, a particular way of living. And I think that's important because when we, when we look at John 17, when we look at John chapter 17 and we hear the phrase, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth, we often think of that word sanctification which is that progressive sanctification where we are being made more and more and conformed more and more into the image of Christ. But I don't think that's what he means here. I don't think Jesus is talking about be made more and more into the image of Christ. What Jesus is saying is sanctify them, set them apart, because look at how he uses that same word in just a few verses later. In verse 19 he says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. 
Now, if we take verse 17 to mean we need to be growing and maturing and becoming more like Christ and, and putting off sin and putting on righteousness and growing and maturing, if that's what that means, then that means Jesus is, always, is also saying that in verse 19. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I am putting away sin. I am putting away uh, falsehood and growing and learning. No, Jesus can't do that because Jesus is perfect. Jesus is holy. Jesus is the blameless one. He is the perfect one. So what then does this sanctify mean? It means be set apart. Be set apart for the purposes of God. Be set apart so that you would be used in the way God would want you to be used. Live in such a way that God would want you to live. Not of this world. Walking purely in this world. How? How? Can we live in this world by fighting off its agenda, fighting off its theology, finding off its wisdom, avoiding the schemes of the evil one? Well, he says it right here. He says it right here in verse 17. Here's how you're to be set apart. In the tr- he says it's in the truth. It's in, in other words, the word for truth is another word for reality. When someone asks you, what is, what is truth? Truth is reality. It's not what you believe. It's reality, whether you believe it or not. And how is it that we come to know reality? It's because what God helps us to see. It's God's wisdom. And that wisdom is given to us through the Word. And the Word is central in what Jesus is praying here when He says, Sanctify them in the truth, thy Word is truth. The Word permeates this prayer. Go back to verse 8. He says, For the words which you gave to me, Father, I now give to them and that they would receive them and truly understand that I came forth from you and that they believe that they that you sent me. So Jesus is explaining this word. It goes back to verse 8 and then in verse 14, I have given them your word. And what's the result? That they would be hated. And so here's Jesus giving a very ironic proposition. How are you going to be kept safe from the world? How are you going to be protected from the world? I'm going to give you the very tool by which you will be hated by the world. I'm going to give you the weapon. I'm going to give you the shield. I'm going to give you the protection called the word. And that same word, that same word that you receive is going to be the reason why the world will hate you. Because Jesus wants us to be reminded that this is not our home. So we must eat what the people of God eat. Jesus said, my, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. And the temptation for us is not to eat the food of God, which is the Word of God. Our temptation is to snack on the junk food of this world. And churches are tempted to serve up junk food of the world on Sunday mornings. Instead of preaching the Word of God, they're tempted to talk about everything, whether that be submarines, or whether that be world events, or whether that be all sorts of other things, but instead of giving them the Word of God, reminding Christians of who they are, what they're to do, and how they are to be purified. And and Jesus says, they're to be purified here by the Word. This Word is what will purify them, and at the same time, this Word is what will persecute them. One man in history fully understood what it meant to have the Word change lives and have the Word absolutely persecute him. 
Martin Luther wrote this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And listen to the words that he said over 500 years ago. And he said this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The, the word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Oh, dear friends, know that Jesus is praying for you to be kept pure by the Word of God. As you hear the Word of God, as you take in the Word of God, as you obey the Word of God, as you hear preaching from the Word of God, because this is what the Word of God does. Isaiah 55, verse 10 to 11. This is what the Word does. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bearing bread to the eater, so will my word which so will my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing that which I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. When God's word is preached, when God's word goes forth, when God's word is unleashed to our ears, it accomplishes what God does and that is it cleanses us, it sanctifies us, it makes us holy, it makes us more and more set apart for purposes According to God, we're going through biblical counseling right now in our CBI. And one of the things we don't want to do when it comes to the scriptures is we tend to, t- to use the scriptures as pills, like a doctor. You have a problem? Well, I've got a verse. You have a problem with anxiety? Well, I've got a verse for you on anxiety. You've got a problem with, with uh, your anger? I've got a verse for your anger. Well, how about if I have a problem with something that the Bible doesn't address? What then do you do? Do you have a verse for that? I'm homeless. Does the Bible address that? I I have been laid off. What does the Bible have to say about being laid off? I don't have a verse for being laid off. We can't use the Bible like pills. We need to use the Bible not as, here's your problem, here's a corresponding verse. The Bible, what it is, it's a lens. It's a way we view the world. It's a way we view ourselves. It's a way we view sin. And it's a way we view God. And when, when the Word of God is taken in, it helps us to see realities that otherwise we cannot see. Why are you constantly frustrated? You blame it on other people when the Word of God is exposed. It says your heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? When there's anger, you, you, you lust and you do not have. You commit murder. Where does that come from? It comes from the heart, from within. James chapter 4, verse says 1 and 2. So the word is really a lens to help us to see things as they really are. That's why Jesus says, thy word is truth. Thy word, in other words, is reality. 
If someone is confused, if someone is lost, if someone needs help, they need the Word of God so that they would see at least this much, at least this much, that they are a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That much they need to see. Because if they don't see that, you know what the Bible becomes? Just another moral book. It becomes just another book of ethics. It becomes just another fix-me book. And God says, I will not have my word return to me void. My, ver- my word will not come to me empty-handed. My word will come and it will bring back souls to me. And the way those souls are rescued is when those souls, when their eyes are open to behold who Christ is, and to behold the person and beauty of who Jesus Christ is, the one who died for sinners, who lived a life on their behalf, in perfect obedience. Have you ever tried to obey the law? Have you ever tried to do that? You failed, haven't you? I know I have. And the reason is because there's something in me called sin. And I can't get rid of it. So God sends His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And His name gives us a clue to what He's to do. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He came as a man to be with us as God. Why did He come down to us? Because we could not go up to Him. He came down to us to rescue us from the, the, the plague, the cancer of sin. And how does he solve sin? He takes it on himself. He lives this life of 33 and a half years obeying God's law perfectly. And he does it for you. You should have obeyed it perfectly, but you failed. So Jesus does it for you. And not only that, he dies the death that we should have died. We should have been hung on that cross. But Jesus takes our place as what the Bible calls our substitute. He takes our place. Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He takes our place. What do we get in exchange for His death? We get His life. How do we know it's real? How do we know we receive true eternal life? Because Jesus rises from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures say. It's fulfilled. Just as Jesus said he would, he will rise again on the third day to prove that death has no hold of him. That death is not the end. That God says, I will love you. I will love you to the very end. And I just, we, I was, we were at a wedding just recently. And at every wedding, at every wedding, there's a statement that's always mentioned when it comes to marrying the couple. And it says, will you and you take each other? I don't know the words exactly. But there's this line that's mentioned. Till death do us part. You are united together until death do us part. You know what the resurrection does? It says that even after death, I will still love you. Even after you die, you will be resurrected to new life and I will still love you because you are mine if you place your faith in Christ. That's what eternal life means. It means that after you die, God the Father will never cease His love which He has set upon you and He will love you forever. Hosea says He has wrapped you with His cords of love to love you with an everlasting love. Because even after you die, He will be with you, never to forsake you, never to leave you. Oh, dear saints, we need to live a life, as Jesus prayed, one that is of reminding ourselves of our true identity, of our true security, and of our purity. I leave you with the words of 27-year-old pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane.
who said this to a fellow pastor who was discouraged. He was not finding fruit in his ministry. And so Robert Murray McShane wrote this famous letter to him. He says this, quote, It is not great talents that God blesses so much as it is great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful, that means full of awe, is an awful weapon in the hands of a holy God. Oh, may we protect our joy, saints, as we remember, as we remember our identity, trust God in our security, and obey God in His word of purity for us. Let's pray. Father, Where else can we go? Where else can we go? But you have the words of eternal life. You have taken our place. You have died on our behalf to love us with an everlasting love. And your desire for us, your vision, your final moment, your final request before God the Father as you live this life, is that we would be pure, that we, we, that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart for your purposes, not our own, that we would live this life in such a way that it would reflect Christ and His glory in our lives. Oh, I pray, would you purify your church? Would you purify the Cornerstone Bible Church? And if your people are discouraged, and if your people are robbed of their joy, if their identity has been stolen if their identity has been stolen by the evil, oh, would you remind them of their true identity? Remind them of who they truly are. They are yours. And this world is not their home. Oh, Father, give them joy. Restore unto them the joy of their salvation. Because that is your desire. You knew that when you would leave, our joy would be attacked. And so I pray, continue to help us fill our joy by filling ourselves with Christ. And in His name we pray. Amen.